We're going to have a bit of a recap to start off with. Today is the second part of a two-part message on Revelation chapter 17. In Revelation chapter 17, there are two key characters, and both of them are evil. Uh, in, in our first part that we had a few weeks ago, we encountered the first character, the great prostitute. And to confuse things a bit, this woman is a symbol of a symbol. Uh, this alluring woman in her expensive designer clothes and blinged out with all sorts of gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of the abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality, this woman actually represents a city, the great city Babylon. But then we discover that ba Babylon itself is a symbol. Uh, Babylon is a symbol of the arrogance and the extravagance and the indulgence of man in godless, arrogant civilization. Babylon represents a society that rejects God. Uh, it's a place where its people elevate themselves to the place of God. It's a society that rejects the law of God, and because it has no basis for its morality, it descends into immorality. It's a place where the arrogance of godless civilization tramples the world's poor and takes advantage of the world's weak. And fifthly, it's the arrogant godless civilization that persecutes the disciples of Jesus. Why? Because disciples of Jesus live counter to the culture of Babylon. And disciples of Jesus are the only ones who keep reminding Babylon that they need to repent. And turn to God. And so the task of us Christians is even though we do live in Babylon, and we, we covered this um, a few weeks ago, we, we definitely are living in Babylon, but even though we live in Babylon, we're not to live as Babylonians. We are to live counter to the culture in which we live. And if you haven't noticed this yet, that, that as a Christian, that you are called by our, our Saviour to live very differently to those who are around us, well, if you haven't noticed this yet, well, it's probably time to start learning just what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus. Because being a disciple of Jesus isn't just about believing in Jesus, it's about following Jesus. It's about following his ways. It's about living in obedience to Christ. So Babylon is the first key character and Babylon is evil. The arrogance of godless civilization against God and against Christians. And in chapter 17, Babylon is judged and destroyed. And everybody goes, woohoo! Woohoo! Right, everyone goes, woohoo! Um, we've got a bit of interaction happening. Very good. Um, but, but we can't cheer too loudly because. To understand chapter 17, we have to understand that the enemy who does away with Babylon is not at all our friend. And so we're going to read chapter 17 now, and I just want us to keep that in mind as we read it. So Revelation chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast 
that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marvelled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is and one has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast." These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages, and the ten horns that you saw... They and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So now we've read that, it's all crystal clear, isn't it, what all that means? Yeah? <laughs> this is some of the toughest part in Revelation. But I'm just going to say something that I hope helps us to get it. The enemy of my enemy is not my friend. Two key characters in opposition to each other, but they're both evil. The first character, the great prostitute, is a symbol of Babylon, which itself is a symbol of the arrogance of godless civilization and everything it represents. And whilst Christians will rejoice at the downfall of Babylon, Babylon is the least important of the two evil figures. While Babylon, for a time, rides on the back of the second character, the beast, the beast hates Babylon and the beast destroys Babylon. And so I'll say it again, the enemy of my enemy is not my friend. Back in chapters 12 and 13, we already learned that 
when the world's history nears its end, an unholy trinity will rise to power. Satan, represented as the dragon. Antichrist, represented as a seven-headed, ten-horned beast who attempts to mimic Christ in an unholy way. And his minister of religion, the false prophet. Antichrist and the false prophet will make war on God's people. They do it by compelling false religion and idolatry, and they do it by shutting Christians out of the marketplace. Anyone who refuses to worship Antichrist or his image won't be allowed to trade. And Jesus' faithful disciples are the ones who are going to be persecuted because we won't worship Antichrist. And so Jesus' faithful disciples will be starved, imprisoned, and executed. We learned all that back in chapters 12 and 13. Now, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, well, the Holy Trinity has a wonderful unity of communion together. But this, of course, is where Satan's unholy trinity fails completely. The Holy Trinity have a perfect bond of love that binds the Godhead together. And it's a bond of love that binds us in together with God. Um, we're not only saved by God, but we fellowship with God. And God lives inside of us by his Holy Spirit. And there's this bond of love. But the unholy trinity of Satan, Antichrist and the false prophet, well, they don't have that bond of love. The only thing that binds them together is a shared hatred, a shared hatred of God and a shared hatred of God's people. And here in chapter 17, we begin to see the collapse where Satan begins to tear himself apart. You know, Jesus told us that a kingdom divided against itself will fall. And that's exactly what begins to happen here in chapter 17. Now, I, I love the way chapter 17 is written. Uh, it's actually mocking Satan. Uh, in Revelation chapter 4, God is worshipped as the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You remember that part where it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. But when it comes to Antichrist who sets himself up in opposition to God, well, he's described as that which was, is not, and will be again, but he's about to rise from the bottomless pit, but only so that he can go to destruction. All right? So the beast, Antichrist, is not eternal like God is eternal. God was, God is, God is to come. But Antichrist was, Antichrist is not, and Antichrist will be again, but only just for long enough for him to get sent to his eternal destruction. Um, so you can see, Antichrist, he sets himself up as this Christ-like figure, but he can never, ever come close to even comparing to the true Christ. In chapter 17, Antichrist even tries to mimic the true Christ by doing battle against evil and by defeating evil. But of course, for Antichrist to defeat evil, who's he defeating? Himself. He's defeating himself and it's the beginning of his own destruction. The enemy of my enemy is not my friend. And so the second key character is the beast, Antichrist. 
And we've talked about him before. He came up earlier. Uh, a world ruler will rise to power and the nations of the world will hand their power over to Antichrist. People will begin to worship him because he is fatally wounded and yet he lives. And anyone who doesn't worship Antichrist will be ostracised. They won't be allowed to buy or sell and they'll be killed. And so there's going to be a very strong temptation to compromise. Um, I, just during the week, I watched something that was on the television. It was the battle for Mosul. Did anybody see that? It was quite a disturbing thing. Of course, we know that Mosul is the place where the, the major battle against ISIS is happening in Iraq. And they, during that telev television program, they took us to a, to a neighbouring city and they went inside this enormous church and, and they said, this city here had the largest Christian population in the whole region and now there's zero Christians there. Because when ISIS came to town, the Christians were rounded up and they were given a choice. Either convert to Islam or you and all your families are going to have your heads cut off. And so some, of course, that's a pretty big temptation to compromise, isn't it? And of course, some did compromise and converted to Islam and many didn't. And so there's no Christians in that city there anymore. And when Antichrist comes, we're going to see very similar types of temptation to compromise. They're not minor temptations. And for those who are not discerning, when they see Antichrist take down Babylon, when they see Antichrist destroying that which is opposed to God, they may begin to start to feel, well, Antichrist is the good guy. He's, he's come, he's their hero, he's their saviour, but he's nothing of the sort. He's worse. So, how does all of this unfold? Well, there's lots of symbolism here, and we could be doing a lot of guessing, but I think all we can be sure of is if we concentrate on the big picture. If we know the big picture... And if we can be sure of the big picture, well, when the time comes, the finer details might all be a little bit clearer to us. Uh, but before we address the big picture, we do have to address some of the symbols. We've already talked about the symbol of the prostitute representing Babylon, representing the arrogant, godless civilization, opposed to God and opposed to God's children. We've also talked about the beast representing Antichrist. But the beast had seven heads, representing seven mountains, but they also represent seven kings. What does that mean? Well, many people have tried to line it up and, and tried to work out exactly who these seven kings are. Seven mountains seems to be an allusion to Rome, but who are these seven kings? And from where do we begin the countdown? If, if John is seeing these things and, and he knows that they're going to happen in the future, has the countdown already begun for John or is the countdown from a future perspective? At the time John wrote this, had five of these kings already been kings? And if so, were they kings of Rome or were they kings of elsewhere in the world? Was one of them currently ruling and was the seventh king yet to come? Or is it from the perspective of the reader in the future? 
You can see the trouble that we have trying to interpret this. And so we could try and name these kings, and some of the commentaries that I read gave varying possibilities, but it all depends who you begin with, who you count as a king, and if somebody sort of rises to power as a sort of a temporary king and then gets replaced by a proper king, do they count as a king or don't they? And, and nobody could really agree. Or are they nations? Because in, the, in Daniel, when they talks about these kings and kingdoms, they're actually kingdoms and nations and actually more appropriately superpowers is it talking about world superpowers that rise and fall and so we have to remember that we're dealing with symbols yes seven mountains do represent rome but what does rome represent the seven heads also represent seven rulers but they also represent seven nations and seven superpowers because that's what I represent in Daniel. I think what's important for us to get from this is the beast, Antichrist, gets his power through the rulers. He gets his power through the nations. He gets his power through the superpowers of the world that rise and fall through the world's history. And the eighth head, which will be the arrival of Antichrist himself will be like but worse than any of the nations or any of the rulers or any of the superpowers that have ever existed before. Where does he get his power from? Well, this is where the ten horns come to play. The ten horns represent ten kings and the fact that their horns refers to their power. You don't want to get gored by the horns of a bull, do you? That's, that's the representation of the power. The number 10 may be refer to their completeness or it may be an actual number and these kings or kingdoms or nations will hand their power over to Antichrist. Right? So you're getting the picture of what this, what's going to unfold here. A king or a kingdom or a superpower will rise to power and 10 other kings or kingdoms or nations will hand their power over to this other one. And so it could be something like the United Nations. It could be something like the G20. It could be something like the European Union. It could be something like the Union of the Soviet States. It could be something like NATO. Are you getting the picture? A bunch of strong and powerful nations will come together with a like mind and unite their military strength under one leader. And firstly, they will destroy Babylon and then they'll go to war against Jesus Christ himself. And that's who the Lamb is. So that's a few symbols. What's the big picture? This is the important part. If you, if you can't remember anything else we've already talked about, this is the important part, the big picture. Firstly, Babylon is judged and Babylon is destroyed. And this is a good thing. Remember, we all went, yoo-hoo! Yep, remember? This is a good part. Godless, arrogant civilization that has all of its confidence in itself and sets itself against God and against God's children is destroyed. It's gutted. And though it's Antichrist and his minions who do it, it's actually the work of God. 
They're going to be instantly defeated and the lamb will conquer them. Antichrist is but a bug that will be splattered on the windscreen of God's purpose in history. Thirdly, the lamb, Jesus Christ, is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the one who is victorious, not Antichrist. And fourthly, those who are with Jesus are called and chosen and faithful. Jesus Christ calls us. God has chosen us. He chose us before the creation of the world. And the faithful part, well, it's the part that we play in all of this. By his Holy Spirit, God helps us to be faithful. And with his help, we can remain faithful through all of the temptations and through all of the troubles and through all of the persecutions. And those who are with Jesus Christ victorious are called and chosen and faithful. That's the big picture. Can you remember that? Yeah, I hope so. There will be worldwide international intrigue and upset. The whole world financial system and everything tied to it will collapse. The functioning of godless civilization is going to crumble. Antichrist will rise to power. Does that mean that God has lost control? Not at all. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. This is all part of God's plan. But Antichrist isn't going to be around for long. He's doomed for destruction. Jesus Christ is the one who is victorious. And those who are with him, Christians, are called and chosen and faithful. That's the big picture. And once we've got the big picture, it's not so scary. It's not so scary, is it? With the big picture? Good. So, what else is important for us to know? Well, I want to share this with you. This, this is what jumped out at me. Babylon rides on the back of the beast. It's connected to the beast. It's powered by the beast. The, the beast is against Babylon, but the beast and, the Babylon, and Babylon are both satanic. So why would the beast hate Babylon and want to destroy it? Well, this, this is all God's doing. God frustrates his enemies so that they turn on one another, and that's why Satan turns on himself. And we can see this principle unfolding even in the world today. I'll just give you a few examples. I'm pretty sure you'd have to agree with me that our society is growing more and more godless. Uh, the laws of God are not just being disregarded, they're now being labelled as unjust. Uh, our society has thrown out morality and is embracing an almost anything goes kind of ethic. And we shouldn't be surprised by this, because where are we living? You think you're living in Australia. You're not. You're living in Babylon, as do I. And so we shouldn't be surprised by this. Because this is what Babylon represents, the arrogance of godless civilization against God, against God's children, and against God's laws. And yet, as a reaction to this godlessness, we have the rise of Islam. It rose before, 
uh, mainly through military conquest, as Muhammad and then various caliphates and, and the Ottoman Empire went out in conquest. Uh, there's a map we've got up there. Uh, disregard the purple. Everything else that's coloured in um, are the territories that at this particular point in time were held by Islam. Now, its tentacles stretched out, stretched out from Persia, the Middle East, the Balkan states, Spain, and it even made its way into France. But by the end of the two world wars, Islam had been beaten into submission. And so, in one respect, Islam is a little bit like Antichrist. Remember, Antichrist was and then is not and then comes again. Um, it rose to being this world power, but then by the end of the world wars, it seemed like it was a spent force. It seemed like it was dead. It seemed like it was a has-been, but now Islam is rising again. Did you know that Islam is currently the world's fastest-growing religion? Uh, and most of its growth is once again due to military conquest, uh, but also it comes from immigration and a higher birth rate than most religions. But there are also conversions. Uh, when I was doing a bit of reading on this, I very quickly discovered that Western journalists are beginning to ask the question, why are so many modern Westerners converting to Islam? Actually, usually their biggest question is why would any Western women ever convert to Islam? Why would they do that? that? To the liberal Western media, this just makes absolutely no sense to them at all. But my understanding is this. An increasing number of Westerners are converting to Islam as a reaction against the godless civilization they live in. They're looking for something bigger. They're looking for a moral structure to live by. In a society where immorality and lawlessness seems to reign, they embrace the strict morals and the order and the structure and the discipline that Islam has to offer. And so Babylon and Islam are both satanic. But Islam hates everything about Babylon. The immorality, the corruption, the godlessness. And so Islam and Christianity have a common enemy, godless civilization. But under Islamic rule, how do you think Christians fare? Even worse, they are persecuted terribly and killed. It's interesting, though, that the spread of Islam is only made possible because of the materialism and the godlessness of Babylon. For many years, they've been bedfellows. The oil that is largely held in the Islamic world has made the success of Babylon possible. And so Babylon has ridden on the back of the beast. And at the same time, the wealth of Babylon is being transferred to Islamic nations making the rise of Islam possible. Uh, you would be surprised if you were ever to understand and know how much oil money goes into evangelism for Islam. A lot. So that's just one example of how we see it unfolding in the world today. Here's another one, and this one might be one you've never thought of. The Green Movement. 
Uh, on the surface, the image of the green movement that, that they like to project of themselves is a getting back to basics, right? We've got to get back, from basic, get back to basics, get away from all of this extravagance. In essence, it's a rejection of everything that Babylon has to offer. It's a rejection of the greed and the opulence and, and the subsequent overuse of resources and whatnot. And yet at their heart, when the Greens come to power, what are they most against? What legislation do they most want to bring into our parliament? They're against God. And they're against Christians. And they're against God's laws. Likewise, the Green Movement can only ever get a go on because they're living in Babylon. The grieve movement is a luxury that can only be afforded by those who live in the wealth and the prosperity of Babylon. And yet, the green movement hates the very thing that has allowed it to exist. Here's another example. The rise of communism. During the communist, communist revolutions of the early to mid-1900s, millions, tens of millions of people were killed. The Russian Revolution had somewhere around about 9 million deaths. During the rule of Stalin, another 6 to 9 million Soviet citizens were killed in the Gulag and deaths during interrogations and deportations. Now, I'm not, I'm not sure how deportations make people die. That must have been pretty brutal deportations. Now, this isn't counting those who died of starvation due to the, the change of we're doing away with all this and you have to now live this way. They are tens of millions more. Under Mao, I don't know how you pronounce Mao, Ma, Ma, Anyway, the, the ruler of, of the Republic of China when, when, the, when the revolution happened. During that revolution, about 40 million people were killed. In more recent times, in Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge, around about 20% of the population were murdered. In just about every communist revolution, the death tolls have been absolutely horrific. And communism at one stage grew very strong. There's no doubt about it. The Soviet Union went from being a nation who had wooden plows to becoming a nation who were a nuclear superpower. And yet when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, to most of us it seemed like, oh, well, it's all over for communism. It seemed like it was a failed experiment. It was an ideal which had been one with blood and maintained with blood and yet was one which always failed to live up to any of its promises. It seemed like communism was a has-been. But of t today, have you noticed that communism, well, it seems to have a new lease on life. It seems that communism is once again growing strong. The transformation of China, it's been amazing. Its trade with capitalist nations of the world has allowed its industries to develop and grow strong while our industries have disappeared. And now that China has grown strong, it's beginning to flex its muscles. It makes its own islands, for goodness sake, so that it can claim territories in the sea. 
It's investing in land and resources all over the world. You know how much of where we live right here is now part of China. It has grown strong off of capitalism. The wealth of Babylon has helped communism to grow and prosper. But now China, Russia, North Korea are becoming more and more warlike as they turn against Babylon. And of course we know the hatred that communism has towards God and towards God's children. So that's just a few examples of how even today we can see how Satan turns on himself. Where a satanic ideal sets itself against godless society. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to us when Antichrist rises that he will turn himself against Babylon in a very similar mechanism to what we see today. But when this happens, are we going to be afraid? Are we going to be terrified? I hope not. Because we have every reason not to be afraid because we have the big picture. It is God's plan for godless civilization to be judged and destroyed. Antichrist who does this may seem to be unstoppable, but he's but a bug to be splattered on the windscreen of God's history. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is victorious. And those who will stand with Jesus Christ in victory are called, chosen, and faithful. That's the big picture. And it's comforting for me to know that no matter what the international upset and turmoil is that, that might arise, we are called and chosen to remain faithful to Jesus Christ. That's it. Now, when all this sort of stuff happen, starts happening, we don't have to run around frantically and go, well, what are we going to do? The one thing we have to do is remember that we're called and chosen and remain faithful to Jesus. That's it. We are not to belong to Babylon. We live in Babylon right now. But we are not to be at all comfortable with fitting in to the arrogant, godless civilization in which we live. Nor are we to give our allegiance to the powers that rise to overthrow godless civilization. The enemy of my enemy is not my friend. There is only one to whom we remain faithful, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's all we have to learn from Revelation chapter 17. Does anybody have any 